Welcome back to Liminal Frames with Nathan and Exo Academian. This is going to be episode 11 of the show. Very excited to have all of you joining us. Uh, for this show, Exo, what I thought we would do is uh, do it not uh, by a soccer field, but maybe if we could go to, I don't know, I'm thinking like uh, a maternity ward at the hospital, or uh, maybe we could record somewhere like, uh, I think you mentioned maybe the airport, uh, airport runway. Uh, what, what do you think? think we get a good response yeah, with that? we want some ambiance of some crying babies or jets taking off in the background. I mean, I feel like we'd be lacking if we didn't have something like that. Absolutely. And if there's one thing I learned from that experiment is uh, people really enjoyed that extra uh, cacophony in the background. Although I will say, as much as we're joking about it, uh, we had a mixture of comments. So we had some folks who uh, didn't mind it at all, some folks who it sounded like they couldn't make it through the episode, uh, some who even messaged me uh, and said that they really enjoyed it because of the soccer noises in the background, that it reminded them of uh, soccer that they used to play, uh, you know, in, in, in when they were kids. So, uh, you know, it's it's just a mixture of things. I do know we're going to try it again. We're just going to pick a little different venue the ne- next time we do. Right. I think, uh, yeah, the, the moral to that story is people respond differently to ambient, to ambient noise. You know, some, some like it, some find it really distracting. Um, we will do uh, some outside venues again, but we will probably try to like have a little bit more minimal background noise when that's the case, like maybe some birds chirping or something like that. Yeah. I could, I could go for some birds chirping. Yeah. Um, well, very excited uh, to try that again in the future. Uh, when you live where we live, it, it, it's just, you have to take that opportunity when, when it presents itself because it does change the dynamic. It's nice to be able to sit across from one another and, and have a conversation like anybody would, uh, with a friend. And while we get to do it virtually, uh, there just isn't a substitute to that, I think, in-person interaction. Well, shifting our attention to uh, the episode for today, we are going to cover uh, contact modalities, methods of contact, and look at this topic from uh, a few different uh, perspectives uh, like we would typically do. And we're going to use a similar format that we used in the last episode. We're going to play some clips uh, that kind of talk a little bit about these different modalities uh, anyone who's familiar with this topic knows that there are a lot of different uh, contact modalities that exist. Uh, we're probably not going to hit on every single one of them, but what we want to be able to do is walk through some of the familiar and then unfamiliar uh, ones that, that exist and examine them from different perspectives. And at the end, we're going to, I think, hopefully take that you know macro view and say, you know, what, what's really happening here with all of these different types of interactions. But Exo, when we kind of talked about this idea uh, as, as our next episode, you know, what were some things that you were looking forward to uh, touching on as we go through this? Well, if I were to use a phrase, I would say a point of convergence um, <laughs> <laughs> between, uh, you know, these different, uh, what are often or what have historically been treated as different phenomena, right? Different uh, fields of study altogether, when actually, when you look at the data, there's a lot of overlap. Um, somehow these all seem to be pointing to some uh, meta category, saying something about the nature of reality itself. Uh, you know, we use this term consciousness, right? That uh, not only is there evidence coming out of, you know, the neuroscience of consciousness and quantum mechanics, suggesting that consciousness may be primary rather than matter and energy. 
but also these different modalities um, also seem to be pointing to that being the case. But in a lot of ways, when we say, therefore, that uh, consciousness is primary and this is the connection point, what we're really saying is the the substrate of reality is wired this way. So people are having these experiences and having this degree of overlap because this is something about just the way the fabric of reality is organized, which is fascinating to me. That This uh, this sort of topic we're, we're tackling tonight is near and dear to my heart. It's probably my biggest fascination and it's the biggest focus of my ongoing research. Uh, it's great to hear you say that because I think that this topic really truly is the on-ramp to understanding what's going on. I think that there are if you if you look at what what the literature sort of hints at, if you look at the various ways in which phenomenal experience occurs, you, if you take it seriously, you have to say, you know, what is the unifying theme? You know, what what is that that substrate, as you said, that really connects these things together? If you can't answer that that question, you're really not getting at the heart of what's going on here. And so, I think it's a uh, it's a great topic to explore. Um, I also think in in a, a sort of landscape where we seem to be information poor in terms of uh, folks saying, well, I want the facts and I want more UFO photos and I want, you know, more, more data. There actually is a great deal of data. It just, it just doesn't happen to come from UFO encounters necessarily. And so we're going to look at some of those other areas that I think are just as equally valid as the UFO piece. And, and again, taking all those things together and saying, okay, let's put it on the board and let's see what's going on here and and see if we can get to a, a greater understanding. Right. I would add that I think part of the reason why um, this hasn't, this focus is fairly new and hasn't been really highlighted, highlighted a lot in the history is because there have been various, you know, interest groups that have lobbied for a particular narrative, right? And only sought to find data that supports that narrative. So you, and here again, I think of Jacques Vallée and uh, the work he's done and his equal critique towards mainstream science and how they will often not touch psi, they will not touch near-death experiences, they will not touch out-of-body experiences, they will not touch supposed alien contact because that seems all too woo, too, uh, you know, outside the mainstream that they just sort of de facto assume it can't be real, <clears throat> must be delusion or, you know, fraudulent people or whatever. So he, he you know, definitely aims some critique against that community, the mainstream scientific community, but he equally is critical of ufology historically that quickly jumps to the conclusion that these are extraterrestrials arriving in physical craft from Andromeda or whatever, and, um, and ignoring all of the data that is outlier data to that hypothesis and basically skewing the data ultimately. And in some ways, it's only more recent studies like the free study that we'll talk about tonight that kind of has put into um, proper perspective the nature of the phenomena in, in general. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right, well, let's jump right into it. I think we're going to uh, kind of unpack some of those things that we just talked about even further. Uh, the first clip that I've got queued up here is going to be uh, from Joseph Burks. And uh, this is kind of a midstream clip, but we chose Joseph Burks because of his uh, deep background in, in the sort of traditional kind of C5, also what he has uh, deemed uh, human uh, initiated contact events or heists. Uh, that's the term that he uses for, for CE5. But he's got a lot of field experience with this, and I thought it would be good to start with here and listen to some of the things that uh, that he and his group experienced uh, through that 
particular modalities. So let me get that started. 90s, as part of this so-called CE5 initiative, I would be going to remote locations. We'd use thought projection uh, and various meditation techniques uh, to uh, actually communicate with the intelligence behind the UFO phenomena. And believe it or not, on numerous occasions, these objects and these intelligences came very close to us. And at, on occasion, we could signal with lights and the UFOs would signal back. Uh, in Mexico, I saw an enormous triangular-shaped craft that came out between the volcanoes, and it was an amazing experience. So these things are, I, I, you know, I find highly credible. I've been doing it for many years, and I encourage other people to be open to the possibilities of contact and communication with UFO intelligences. This is All right, so there he's just relaying uh, an experience, one of many that he's had uh, out in the field. Um, where through meditation, uh, through, I think, even signaling, he and other stories talks about they had like a flashlight that they would use, uh, you know, the craft and orbs, all these things would, would appear. Uh, and, and not in that clip, but in others that I listened to, he talked uh, and addressed as well. Uh, in some of these experiences, uh, not everyone in the group would see the same thing. Um, and you hear that from time to time in the literature as well. So, so this is kind of, again, what the community knows to be as uh, C5, uh, that, that human-initiated contact. Uh, what is your take on this modality? What What's happening here? Are there lots of facets to this? And, and there's also a lot of baggage with it, too. A lot of folks uh, have kind of a knee-jerk, like, oh, we should never be doing that. And other folks like, yeah, it's totally fine. I do it every week, and I've always had a positive experience. What, what, what's your take on this one? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you framed it with that sort of, you know, pre uh, sort of, you know, ramble there because it is a, an interesting topic for numerous reasons. Um, so a couple of things, number one, uh, Joe Burks is a friend of mine and I've talked to him numerous times on the phone and uh, just sort of, he's a wealth of information from the, you know, the, the historic days of CSETI and in the nineties and all that. And it's just great hearing his experiences and how much, uh, you know, he was the generation prior to us who really, you know, put his career and his life kind of on the line to go and pursue this. And, and, and he, um, you know, really focused on being around what he called prime contactees. And these are the people that he, he, uh, identified as usually since birth, uh, if not since birth, then definitely by adolescence, they've begun to have contact with these others, whoever they are. Right. And that even when they have certain practices they use like meditation, They've often been, they looking back, they realize they've been encouraged in those kind of practices to develop meditative skills so that it can become a, uh, a mode of contact um, in the future. Um, yeah, and like you said, there's a lot of baggage with CE5 because, because of Stephen Greer. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, I'm, I'm thankful for the contribution Stephen Greer made, but I, I definitely think uh, he's, you know, brought some, shame on the community uh, more recently and and is kind of off track a little bit. And, and it's unfortunate because I think CE5 is a unique uh, kind of contact modality because you know that one of the questions I'm really interested in is like how many different groups of others are there? How many different sources are behind the UFO phenomenon? This totality that we reference, but you know, it may very well be different groups with different sources and in terms of like positive, negative, neutral, the vast majority of the data 
And I've looked at a lot of it and I've talked to people like Joe and a friend of ours, James Iandoli. Uh, and it seems like well into the high 90 percentage uh, comes down to very positive encounters. And the few cases where I am aware of some, uh, you know, a couple outlier negative cases, I think there were extenuating circumstances in those particular cases that make me think there was more than just the normal CE5 kind of or heist. Uh, kind of protocol involved that may have caused some negative interaction because as we talked about before, and I've talked about on Point of Convergence, the energy you bring, the intentionality you bring really matters in these kind of subtle reality kind of states. So, you know, and, and Joe Burks talks about these others asking them to prepare themselves to meditate beforehand. Even in groups that he was involved with in South America, they were encouraged by these others, according to him, to take on a vegetarian diet, you know, and me being a vegetarian, I resonate with that. And it's very interesting. And, and, and then a couple of times where they let someone come that kind of didn't have that mature in energy and not, wasn't that consciously focused, actually the, the, the entities or the UFOs didn't show up on those couple occasions. So it does seem like what we bring to the table matters. It's part of the interaction. Um, and yeah, and last thing I'd say is with, with Joe Burks himself, he's talked about what he calls like a virtual reality model that he thinks that they're not necessarily, you know, 3D, like you can knock on it and hear a, a ping sound on the metal. Not that that doesn't happen. They seem to have the ability to sort of shift the, the frequency, the modality to sort of take on a 3D, you know, physical object kind of appearance. But from his perspective, a lot of time, it's more like a virtual reality being projected into the sky and that kind of thing. And like you say, situations definitely exist where one person sees it, one doesn't. So many fascinating uh, aspects of this C5 slash heist. Yeah. I, well, I love listening to the practitioners. I'm not myself one. I've not tried it, uh, at least with any concerted effort, but I'm very fascinated when I hear of those who have, and, and particularly those who do frequently. Um, where I come at this particular topic is, you know, dipping into my religious background through you know prayer and and meditation in and of itself, and uh, you know in the Christian tradition, uh, you know prayer does take on a lot of different forms depending on you know kind of the subset of Christianity that you might find yourself in. But you know it interests me that there is some type of uh, qualitative difference, seemingly, and maybe there isn't, but it, from my perspective, there seems to be a type of qualitative difference between. Uh, you know, a community, let's say a congregation uh, of believers who are praying uh, for a specific thing. Uh, and, and you don't have, at least in my experience, and, and we've talked about this, in, uh, you know, kind of off, off the air before, you know, no orbs have appeared, you know, no uh, angelic beings have appeared in response to those uh, efforts. So, you know, I find that that's interesting only because it's the closest corollary that I have to something that looks like C5. So, you know, what I would be interested to see is a, a kind of a broad study of a similar, you know, sort of practices, mental practices, uh, like prayer and meditation that are, that are embarked on by groups of people and their expectations and what occurs in the, uh, both the physical, uh, space and mental space of those who are in engaged in the act. And, you know, I know there are lots of different phenomenon that appear, uh, and oftentimes they are, or in many ways they, they, they do 
kind of mimic or mirror uh, to some degree the expectations of the practitioner. And so, you know, I'm interested with from when looking at CE5, when you're going up to a mountain and you're and you're intending to engage with, you know, a non-human intelligence and traditionally you understand those engagements to take the forms of orbs or triangles or saucers or whatever and those things also happen to appear you know is that confirmation bias like what what is really happening uh, in that experience and and with the religious devotee you know if 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 they're not praying with the expectation of an angel appearing and and an angel never does appear, you know. Then maybe it's the same modality and the same result. It's just that they're not they're not expecting a kind of uh, epiphenomena to occur, in, you know, in, in their awareness in their in their spatial awareness. Yeah, it, it's interesting to make that you know connection between religious history or religious experience and CE five, and to add another <clears throat> slice to that. Uh, I've read some and and studied some of the parapsychological research around healing intentionality. So here we're taking it out of CE5, we're, you know, we're taking it out of religious history. We're just saying they've done studies around psi and how does it work when people are praying with intentionality for someone's healing, someone who has cancer or some sort of disease. And what they found, uh, again, this is just the data, right? This is not like what they wish was the case. This is what the data says that it really does make a difference when people with the right intentionality and a certain level of consciousness are actively engaged in praying for someone and when the person being prayed for is also open to it and engaging in the process as well. That's when you get the most uh, noticeable results uh, in terms of that entire prayer and being receptive to prayer uh, impacting the actual physiological condition and diagnosis of the person involved. It's not to say it works all the time. That's not what I'm saying. But when it does work, those seem to work at a greater level more often than when it's people who are not really uh, that consciously you know, focused on what they're doing or people are not praying or the person who's being prayed for is negative or cynical or whatever. So these, these issues really do matter, these different elements, these variables. And again, it points to something about reality. What is it about C5 and religious history and, you know, parapsychological research around the power of prayer with Psy and whatnot that shows that reality itself bends to the will and the intentionality and the consciousness of the uh, conscious agents, to use a Donald Hoffman phrase, uh, that are actively engaged in the process. Mm-hmm. The word that came to mind for me is uh, participatory, you know, that, that when you're talking about intentionality, so there is this kind of participatory field in a way that, that seems to be present that uh, acts as a kind of amplifier, perhaps, uh, for uh, the experience or a heightened experience. And uh, to me, these are avenues well worth pursuing and studying uh, and, and I think are particularly helpful to think of because we traditionally think of uh, communication with a non-human intelligence. You know, we think of SETI, uh, you know, where we're doing the radio s- signals in the universe and we're listening with the headphones and we're, we're waiting for like a billboard to come across the sky. You know, we're here, everybody. You know, something that is a, a traditional type of communication. We send out a signal, it comes back, uh, and it's very much a, like a ra- radio conversation. Um, and, and it reminds me that uh, that's not necessarily 
how it will take place or how it will occur. And that what, what may occur, in fact, is something on a, on a more fundamental, deeper level that really transcends language. And after all, language is a layer on top of, uh, it's a symbolic layer on top of our experience that we apply to engage with one another. There are lo- all kinds of ways that we communicate without using language. Um, and so this net next clip that I'll kind of queue up speaks to the, this directly. Uh, this came from Lou Elizondo uh, on the show, on our show, Calling All Beings, uh, last week. When I asked Lou about uh, the communication, methods of communication that have been tried uh, with these, uh, you know, with these objects, whatever they are, and, uh, you know, intentionality and what we would expect to see if we decide to get more engaged and, and be more proactive in reaching out to whatever these uh, entities happen to be. So let's listen to his response to that. I can figure out what, what you mean by that. Um, communication doesn't have to be verbal. And I think that uh, when we when we look at something like this, um, case in point, I've used this a lot. When there's a Russian bear reconnaissance aircraft off the coast of Alaska, okay, it's not communicating with, it's not squawking, it's not not getting on the comm saying, "Hi guys, we're here, we're just going to surveil you." What what do we do? We 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 scramble two F twenty twos out of out of Alaska and we go on an intercept mission. Now, we don't talk to them, but we just get really, really close and let them know, hey, buddy, if you step over this line, bad things are going to happen. Uh, are we communicating intent? You're damn right we are. And are they commuting intent? Absolutely they are, right? All right. So I think that was a great point, uh, reminding us that uh, when uh, I think Director Bray and uh, USDA Moultrie were responding to the congressional uh, you know, hearing questions about, you know, have we made attempts to communicate? And they said, no, nah, you know, we haven't done that, uh, that there are all kinds of communication that, that exist, uh, forms and fashions of communication that are not traditional, you know, let me call you up on the, on the, the jet phone and uh, I'm going to ask you to, to identify yourself. So uh, I think that's really helpful, um, particularly because we often really anthropomorphize uh, the ways in which we uh think or plan to communicate with whatever this might be. Uh, but EXO, you know, thinking that through, you know, what are, uh, you know, what, what's kind of the scope of nonverbal communication and, and what does that kind of imply about the way we might interact with whatever this, this happens to be? Right. Well, I would say a couple of things on very opposite ends of the spectrum. So to begin with what Lou Elizondo was talking about there, you know, so in an, an arena of warfare or, you know, territorial rights and that kind of thing, you know, different, there are different international, you know, rules in terms of what you do and what you don't do and what lines you can cross and what lines you don't cross. And like you said, what are you signaling in terms of intent by not doing something? You know, a, an aircraft flying without proper identification, right, or lights flashing says either there's a technical problem or somebody maybe wants to crash this plane into, you know, the World Trade Center or something, you know, like it can mean a couple of different things. And very quickly, they will try to figure out which one is the case here, right? Um, and I would also say, while I understand what he's saying, that's one thing when you have human nation states, right? And a certain understanding of international rules of law and, and airspace and that kind of thing. I'm much more cautious when I would, when it comes to jumping to conclusions about what 
UAP that are not necessarily conventionally human uh, might be signaling. You know, so for instance, some people hear about UFOs showing up and dismantling our our nuclear you know arsenal and taking silos offline and whatnot. So we couldn't respond if the Soviets had happened to fire at us. Uh, in the Cold War, of course, we know the same things happened to the Soviets. So it's not like these UFOs are playing favorites, right? Um, but some people will look at that and say, oh, wow, that's that's clearly uh, a hostile act. And if the Soviets were able to do that, we would interpret it, or the Chinese or whatever, Iran. If they did that, we would say they're clearly doing a dry run to see if they can take down our nuclear arsenal so that when they attack us, we're defenseless, right? That makes sense. That's logical from a nation state perspective. You can't expect to go and do that to uh, uh, you know an enemy somewhere on the other side of the planet and not have them interpret that as a hostile act. Very clearly it is. But these are supposedly non-human intelligences who may just look at it and say, listen, you you humans are insane. You've got these this enough nuclear arsenal to destroy the planet, you know, several times over, and not just your own civilization, but taking out so much of the biosphere with it. We're just wanting to either send you a coded message that that's not a good idea, or we are testing our capacity to stop it if a nuclear war ever were to take place, right? So there's different ways you interpret the same event based on who the players are and whether or not they're human or not. And even with what I just said to you just then, that's still me making guesses, right? That's still an educated guess, an estimate of what it might mean. There might be a third option, a fourth, a fifth that I can't even conceive of, nor can you, nor can we from an you know anthropocentric kind of perspective. So yes, absolutely, uh, communication can be nonverbal, but we just have to be very careful about, about being too dogmatic about what the interpretation of that is. The other thing I would say on the other side of the spectrum is how much historically in the UFO phenomenon that the communication ends up being telepathic in nature. So it's not like people hear voices audibly. They just hear direct communication in their minds, so to speak. And it's not even just, you know, spoken words strung together in a sentence that they sort of hear in their mind. It's more like often the case, it's a complete like emotional relay. So the entire experience of these others is now communicated. So you know exactly how they feel there's no, in some ways, there's less room for misinterpretation because it's less reliant on tone of voice and body language and facial expression. You really get the firsthand direct communication as if you're plugged into their mind. At that point, time and space and two minds seem to be not in the picture. It's just direct communication, uh, soul to soul, so to speak. So that's that's fascinating to me. That's uh, a key aspect of not just UFO encounters, but also near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences as well. And of course, what's fascinating about it is not just that these others communicate with us telepathically, but we seem to have the capacity to naturally be able to communicate that way as well. So it's not like they're just projecting some sort of technology on us. It may be something, again, about the substrate of reality being based in consciousness that all sentient life has this capacity at root, sort of, you know, innately to be able to do this. And we just have either lost the capacity over time as we developed, you know, spoken languages over time, or maybe we're evolving towards this capacity. Uh, but either way, it's very, very fascinating. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think about the, uh, the sort of loss, 
lossiness of our communication methods. You know, if we think about, um, you know, if you're sitting across from someone in a room and you're, and you can't, you can't text with them or talk with them or have a conversation, your communication is entirely nonverbal. You know, so you're just looking at how they're physically uh, presenting them themselves to you, whether they're looking at you, whether they're using any kind of hand gestures. So take it at another to another level from that. Let's say you can't see the other person, but you can text with them. You know, we all know uh, through Twitter and through text messages that have gone awry uh, that you send a text and it's completely misinterpreted. Uh, we, we try to, you know, prevent that by using capitalization, punctuation, even emoji to try to convey our intent but inevitably it's completely misunderstood <laughs> or it can be misunderstood. Uh, then you can have a phone conversation with someone, you know, you don't have that text issue. You're, you're really doing in a way what we're, we're doing here. Um, except we're taking it to a level beyond that. We can see each other. Uh, and then if you're with a person uh, in person, having a conversation, it, it changes the dynamic even further. You've got the nonverbal, the verbal, the proximate, you know, all these different things that are happening in shared space. But anyone who's uh, had a life, a long time relationship with someone will tell you, you can be in close contact with someone, have a communication, have a have a, a conversation, and completely come away with the, both parties totally misunderstanding each other. So communication takes a lot of different forms, and the telepathic uh, sort of mode of communication, to me, uh, it does sound a little bit more pure. You know, it's a little bit less lossy. Uh, because you're really getting that that full immersive context, but even as you pointed out with the example that that he's providing, uh, there's no reason for us to assume that because we are doing certain things with our uh, you know our airplanes or our, our ships uh, or whatever other you know uh, military equipment that we're using uh, in those fields of operation that whatever these craft are doing in response that we can interpret it. In, in in the same way that we would interpret uh, an enemy uh, fighter or uh, or even an ally fighter, you know, we're not necessarily dealing with the same playbook here. Uh, and for all we know, uh, whatever that other object is doing, it may have absolutely nothing to do with what we're doing. We just are, are laying onto it an assumption that it is related to something that we have tried, uh, you know, and have put out there. So for me, this is a topic of. Um, you know, of some concern, if I can, you know, be frank, uh, and that is that, uh, you know, if we are going to more proactively engage with whatever th this happens to be, whatever these others happen to be, you know, I'd like some level of assurance that those engagement efforts uh, would be well spent, that uh, that we would have some reasonable expectation of behavior in, in response, that, that we could in fact understand and not misinterpret, you know, so uh, classic examples that I can think of, uh, of where, you know, there's like an alien sci-fi horror movie where, you know, the human is doing one thing and the alien is doing something in, uh, that is reciprocating whatever the human's doing and the human's thinking, oh, this is going to be, you know, a positive engagement here and the alien, you know, has the human for lunch or whatever. So, you know, totally misunderstood what was taking place there. And, you know, for me, that that certainly is a concern, even though I understand that, uh, you know, with the large body of evidence that we have for kind of uh, C5 and other, you know, contact situations that they've generally been pretty positive. But it is something that I think we need to be, you know, aware of and, and really 
tackle head head on and not be shy about at least considering what might happen with any method of communication that we uh, put out there in our attempts to engage, engage with whatever this happens to be. Right. And I think, you know, there's legitimate concern from people that has been voiced regarding what happens when first contact is with our military, you know, with our armed forces, because again, there's certain expectations and and sort of de facto interpretations based on certain actions. So, um, you know, showing up in restricted airspace, again, if it was the Soviets doing or not sorry, the Soviets, that's yesteryear, the Russians or the Chinese or somebody else, we would interpret that as, as you know, a hostile act, even potentially an act of war, right? And um, there are certain understandings that certain kinds of behavior is basically considered an act of war. Again, I'm concerned with a military infrastructure that's used to that kind of language. So the second they see that, you know, with a U- with UAP or something, they quickly jump to, aha, they're clearly showing hostility. They're declaring an act of war, whatever. Because again, if you if you're not working within that framework, because again, we're not even talking about a human framework. We're talking about a you know a, a living in the 2022 human framework with an international, you know, structure and airspace and things like that. Right. And so it's very time bound as well as place bound and species specific. So it's, it's jumping to a huge conclusion to assume that some, you know, other race or species or kind of intelligence will play by that rule book or even be aware of it. Right. If they, if they're coming from a more of a non-dual perspective where, you know, borders and boundaries and territory, and even like the separation between who you are and who I am is, you know, not so clear and, and, you know, solid, then they may mean it in a completely positive way. You know, there's been lots of cases in, in experiential literature where human beings are overwhelmed by the degree to which the boundaries seem to dissolve. And so sometimes they feel like a loss of self, almost like a feeling of death sometimes, because what you've, especially if you're very identified with your executive ego uh, your waking self, and you have a certain identity around that, when suddenly that is dissolved and you're feeling this other intelligence inside of you, knowing your history, knowing your most intimate thoughts, and it's making itself available to you too. That's just the nature of its existence, it seems like, then that can be very overwhelming. So if beings like that show up, we shouldn't expect them to play by these you know, international uh, rules uh, around law and uh, you know, warfare and interaction. So Lots of things to think about. And I do, you know, there's been lots of movies, like you say, made where that very thing is plays out, right? Where actually a positive alien intelligence comes and the military right away wants to shoot it down, right? But we are hearing cases, you know, as much as that's kind of a cliche and a, a stereotype, we are hearing cases even recently where we supposedly are firing at UFOs that then shoot up into space, right? This has been something that's been uh, talked about very, very recently, this week, basically. So... We've certainly made that that error before, and it seems like we're still making that error uh, on occasion. And um, because this has been so hush-hush and there's been so much stigma, stigma for so long, the military really hasn't held the, the hearings that are necessary and developed the kind of information necessary to say, what is a reasonable response when we think we're interacting with something that's non-human potentially? How should our actions and our protocols be different in that scenario rather than we when we identify as the Russians or the Chinese or whatever? These are the questions we should be having, you know, the conversations we should be having 
uh, especially because there's so much evidence now that this is really happening. This is happening regularly out in the oceans with our military, with our naval groups and whatnot. We should actually have protocols in place that are very clear about these kind of things so that we don't send the wrong message to uh, other you know, in alien intelligence. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we absolutely have to be asking these questions. We have to be encouraging that specific conversation. Um, and you know, if we're not going down that path, I, I really fear we are you know, jumping the gun here, maybe even literally, uh, in, in the way that we are engaging with this, uh, whatever it happens to be. So, you know, the things that I am looking for in our public conversation are, uh, you know, hints that our officials are looking at that, are thinking about, about that aspect, are consulting with people who have thought through this particular aspect of uh, engagement with a non-human intelligence that is either on par or maybe exceeds our own you know, what, what are the rules, you know, are there rules? What, what are some things we should be doing to lay groundwork there so that we're being as careful as we possibly can. And on top of that, how well are we coordinating with, you know, other world powers and doing the same, you know, it's not just good enough for the United States to have this figured out uh, and approach it in a, in a careful, thoughtful way. We really have to have everybody on board, and because we we know from everything that we have heard that this is a worldwide from worldwide phenomenon. Um, it's not only being engaged with uh, by other military powers; it's being engaged uh, with on a very personal level across the globe. And so that also speaks to the fact that we need to be listening, if not now, but I think soon, listening to those who have claimed interaction with whatever this happens to be. We need to take those experiences and accounts very seriously. Uh, as, as you said before, you know, take them seriously, but hold them lightly. We need to collect them. We need to analyze them. We need to, as best we can, study them and see if we can re reproduce any of that. Um, if our official powers are not making the effort to do these kinds of things, then I really think we are, uh, you know, getting into a situation that we may very well not be able to back ourselves out of. Um, so, you know, I'm looking for signs that we're doing that. I know that that these are early days, I think, in this in this public conversation. But it 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 strikes me that it very naturally follows once we can accept publicly that this is what might be taking place. We absolutely must then go to, you know, how is what is the most responsible way to try to interact with whatever this happens to be. And I really hope that we're having those conversations, at least in the in the back rooms right now, maybe not in the front, but uh, that we're being putting ourselves in a place where we're ready to have that conversation when, when that time comes. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, sort of one follows the, the other. So we really have to have public acknowledgement. We need to have more of the public recognizing that this is really going on and then people you know, become normalized to this to this this topic, and then we begin to have conversations about what is the national and what is the international response uh, to this kind of matter. You know, and there there have been some historic cases where there there seemingly were some hostile acts. You know, we think back to cases in in Brazil, for instance. There's definitely been some some situations there historically where some negative entities seem to show up. You know, and so. How, how are they different than the CE5 groups, you know, that we're interacting with? Why is that data set so different? Again, we can't even begin to tease out the differences, potentially the patterns there that could identify one group over another. 
until we first acknowledge on a more public level that this is really happening, that there may be multiple intelligences here. And from there, we ask the more complex, but very, very pressing questions. Absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of, uh, you know, sort of the, the pros and cons of, of contact and, you know, what we can look to in uh, the research and uh, in, in the literature and anecdotes of folks who have had contact, I think this next clip is a good um, example to review. So this is going to be from uh, Ray Hernandez. And I think this is Ray Hernandez uh, speaking with uh, George Knapp. Uh, I think it's on Mystery Wire, so let's, uh, let's cue that up and take a listen. The things that jumped out at you, that the conclusions that were Well, reached. we have four major uh, findings. Uh, research findings. So we could go into hundreds of them, but the right. four major ones is that uh, we asked uh, almost uh, 25 questions related to the question of positive, negative, or neutral. Was your experience positive or negative or neutral? We asked it in more than 25 different ways because depending on how you ask the question, you get different responses. Okay. So um, what we uh, found out was that the responses was between 85% that were not negative to 95% that were not negative. We also found out was that in the very beginning of the experiences, 38% responded that their experiences were negative, perceived as highly negative, 38%. But then when we asked the individual now, what is your perception now? That number dwindled to like what I said before, between 85 to 95%, not, not negative. Uh, uh, a good majority of the responses, uh, with, depending on the question asked, was between 50 to 60% was neutral. So it wasn't that it was positive either. It was uh, positive was depending between 35 to, to 45% was positive experiences. But neutral was the largest of the three categories. But the negative was actually the, the smallest part. We also discovered... Stop it there. So uh, that's Ray Hernandez speaking to George Knapp on results from the free study uh, that I you know, did a comprehensive survey of a lot of folks that have had contact and just relaying some of the results of, of that study. I know you've talked about free a great deal on point of convergence. Um, you know, I know you could go to that well pretty often, so you're very familiar with it. But what are what's your takeaway from free? Uh, do we think it's something that we can really look, look to with some uh, validity? Uh, you know, what is your takeaway just generally from these results? Yeah, it's it's fascinating study, uh, the largest of its kind that's ever been done. That should be acknowledged. Uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to Free and to to Ray and, you know, a lot of people uh, historically that were involved with Free and got this done. You know, part of what Ray recognized was to get this to get more traction in the mainstream, we need to have this studied by academics and we need to have a, you know, a survey that follows certain protocols. So we have certain confidence in, in the data and the conclusions, uh, both a qualitative and a quantitative kind of survey aspect. All that's good. Um, there were some fascinating, uh, you know, results that came from it. That I think were very surprising. Ray has talked pretty frankly about the fact that he is frustrated with mainstream ufology and the sort of typical negative abduction experience, you know, kind of anal probes, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the, the real negative stuff. Not because it's not part of the literature, but because from his point of view, that's been overemphasized. That when you look at the free research based on these surveys that were done, right, voluntarily by people, 
that's a relatively small percentage of the totality. Like he says, the, the results of the free study were that the vast majority were non-negative. When he says non-negative, what he means is they either re- voted for positive or neutral, right? It's one of those two. And even when you take out neutral, the positive was remarkably high. When you also add in the fact that he talked about the difference between initial reactions and then later reactions, the big factor there, the variable in play there is the ontological shock, which I've also talked about many times. This is a term that um, you know has been around for decades. And what basically that's about is that when suddenly these non-human entities appear in your room or whatever, it's going to be frightening. We're going to have a natural physiological reaction based on our evolutionary history, which is, this is not good. You know, our, when our ancestors suddenly saw a lion step, I mean, I've had this happen. I've had a mountain lion step out from behind a tree before when I was completely alone. And I know what it feels like. Just the adrenaline shoots through your body. You suddenly feel extremely vulnerable. And that's with a, a known entity, Right. Uh, in this case, you have beings that are supposedly not supposed to exist suddenly appearing in your bedroom, the place is the most, you know, safe, secure chamber you're supposed to have. Locked doors don't do a damn thing uh, if they just appear in your bedroom, right? Float through walls or whatever. So that's that's fascinating. It's also interesting that when you think about the kinds of entities that were encountered, uh, this also, I think, flies in the face of some of the ufological history, because while the greys are in there, they're not number one. The number one kind, I believe, was an energy kind of being that didn't have a humanoid or a gray form, just sort of like a ball of energy that kind of appears that's non-distinct in some ways. You know, the kind of orb kind of thing fits within that as well. Then you have a kind of a humanoid figure that shows up next, which is very interesting. And I had an encounter like that personally back in 2005, so I know what that's like. Um, And then you have the small greys, the tall greys next in line in terms of the most common entity encountered, followed up by the reptilians and the mantids, right? And by the way, even with the mantids, he talked about, or sorry, with the reptilians, that had the highest negative response. But again, there was still a huge shift between initial and later because he talks about this when a nine foot tall, 500 pound muscular crocodile head being appears in your room, you can understand that's that's a whole different level of shock. You feel very vulnerable physically in that case. But again, it's surprising how many people come to see that either as neutral or positive over time. So that's some of the findings themselves. The only other part I would add is that some people have questioned the methodology because the way that they gathered this data was to target, for instance, Facebook groups that either had you know, near-death experiencers or alien contact experiencers, you know, or people who had seen UFOs. So basically, the people who took the survey had to have had some sort of contact with non-human intelligence. And these are people that are self-selecting to join the survey, right? And they're already targeting groups that some people might argue are more likely to attract people who have a negative or have a positive encounter, because if you really had a traumatic experience, you might just want to block it entirely, disassociate from it, not talk about it regularly. And so you're not like as likely to join a Facebook group about contact with non-human intelligence or near-death experiences. So in that sense, you could argue that perhaps they're not getting a completely accurate picture of the totality of the data. And I think that's a valid criticism. I don't think that's because Free was trying to bias the results. I just think there's only so much you can do. How much can you seek out people who are deliberately not wanting to talk about this, right? That's difficult. But it's a fair criticism that you might not have a complete picture of the data, 
But nevertheless, what did emerge was interesting and kind of flies in the face of some of what has been presented in ufological history. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there. Are th what comes to my mind is that uh, as this topic kind of gains traction in the public arena, uh, we're going to need more free studies. You know, we're going to need more research in this area. And the normalization of the topic itself will uh, counteract to some degree the bias that you just described, that uh, as more people are feeling comfortable sharing their experience, uh, whether that be positive or negative, uh, then more people will talk about it. You know, so we'll get more data and we'll be able to analyze that. And I will say uh, just in the last few years, at least in the circles that you and I find ourselves, where this topic has become much more normalized, you know, we have seen an increase in individuals, I think, who've come forward and shared their experiences. And the ones that I've interacted with, those experiences have have generally been positive. They, But they have gone through oftentimes the, the same sort of uh, stages and phases that Hernandez just spoke to, that they initially are, are very, uh, you know, alarming and, and quite negative. Uh, and then they go through, uh, you know, kind of a period of, of reflection and understanding, even to uh, almost wanting to have the experience again to gain greater clarity uh, on what's going on. They feel sort of mentally better prepared to engage with this uh, same kind of entity again and then be able to ask questions of it or, uh, you know, not approach it from a state of fear so there can be a more uh, beneficial dialogue. And so I do think that uh, the, the free study is very helpful as kind of a signpost for us to look at an example of, of what a research initiative might look like, but also for really what will take place uh, in the public, in, in the world, you could argue, when this topic does become, uh, you know, part of the, the, the accepted reality. You know, the world itself is going to go through these very same stages. You know, it's going to be, uh, you know, that instinctual, this can't be true, you know, uh, a knee-jerk, you know, reaction against uh, to, you know, oh, it really, I, you know, I, I'm coming to grips with this and what, what does that mean for me? And it is true to I really want to learn more about it. Uh, to, you know, a, a sense of greater engagement. And, and to some degree, we really have to go through the, those stages. You know, it's one thing for this to happen on a very individual level and for that to happen kind of peppered throughout the population. It's valuable. Uh, it's another thing altogether to have this happen, you know, worldwide on a, on a much larger scale. And, you know, if you're looking at it and thinking about it from sort of the unfolding of a relationship here with whatever these entities are and, and the variety that they, that they may, may represent, we need human civilization to go through these phases. We need to be able to do so in a way that is healthy, that can be uh, honored, that can be respected and give people the space they need to, to really experience the different emotions that are naturally going to be experienced uh, when this, uh, you know, becomes a greater reality. So, you know, I think this is a really helpful clip and, a, and just a helpful study, you know, generally, obviously a study of this na nature, like you said, it's going to have its flaws, uh, but those are things that we can look to and learn from, you know, as we move, move forward with this conversation. Right. And I, I would add that there have been a couple other studies historically, even well before this, and they found very similar uh, came to very similar conclusions in terms of the data, in terms of positive, negative. So that's worth noting as well. In addition, one of the facets that came out of this study that was, you know, probably the most significant 
and this plays very much into why I called my podcast Point of Convergence, is because Ray was the one who coined this term, the contact modalities. It was his is his expression. And he used that because, number one, he had a vision one time. He was talks about driving down uh, you know, a busy part of Miami uh, in you know, rush hour traffic kind of thing, listening to some radio program, and then suddenly finding himself out of his body in an altered state of consciousness, no longer in his car at all. And he didn't even have a body. He was just like a floating consciousness and saw kind of this symbolic giant display that had kind of a symbology talking about the contact modalities. You had near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, alien contact, you know, mediumship, on it goes kind of thing, that these were all different modalities connected to one central hub. So he was basically basically being shown a symbol, uh, you know, an entire diagram to say this is really all connected. Um, it wasn't just that he put it together. He literally saw that. Visibly, he saw that. And that's when he recognized, this is what I'm being told, that we need to focus our research in this direction. And sure enough, that you know also bore out in the free research uh, findings that one of the f- most fascinating aspects that emerges is that if you've had one of these modalities uh, emerge in your life, you're much more likely than the average population to have another one. So if you've had a near-death experience, you're much more likely to experience psi phenomena like a precognitive dream or telepathy, or you're more likely to see a UFO. If you've seen a UFO, you're much more likely to experience telepathy and have precognitive dreams, uh, and on it goes. You're more able to disassociate and have out-of-body experiences. So of course, this raises some really fascinating questions around, is this a chicken and egg thing? Is there, are these people already wired at birth kind of thing in such a way that they're more likely to have these experiences just, you know, than the average population? Or is it that some sort of, uh, you know, catalyst experience changed something in them, which allowed them from then on to physiologically interact with reality differently, you know? And getting back to his his experience where he was suddenly out of his car. One of the things that happens too is he he says it took about 20 or 30 minutes experientially, but when he got put back in his car, the radio program was at the exact same word he left at. So in other words, you have that space-time distortion. And that's another uh, key aspect of the data is that space-time distortion happens in all of these experiences, whether it's near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences or contact with non-human intelligence, UFO sightings, missing time, whatever you want to call it, you know, People talk about suddenly, you know, driving down the I-5 uh, in busy rush hour traffic and, and a couple people being able to see a UFO overhead and everybody else being oblivious, right? So again, it raises questions, not just about who these p- others are, but what is the nature of reality that allows that to happen? We sometimes will say something like, well, they're just projecting into our individual consciousnesses. But that, again, makes some assumptions about the nature of reality itself. It assumes kind of a physicalist model and says, okay, so they're just basically beaming, you know, information or, or images into the, you know, gray matter of someone's skull. But again, there's, I don't think that's what's really going on. I think something more fundamental is going on that involves consciousness, which is, you know, it, it exists prior to physical uh, nature and energy and matter and whatnot. And I think that's pointing to that. And, and you know, Jacques Vallée famously said, the one thing the UFO phenomenon tells us is that we don't really understand space-time, right? 
He didn't say it stretches some of our assumptions. He says what's going on makes it clear that we don't know what we're talking about when we think about space-time, that we have a normal mode, or as Einstein said, you know, space and time is the manner in which we think, you know, not really what the nature of reality itself. So we have all, all this data pointing towards this. Same thing with quantum experiments. You know, you can, you can run cause and effect in, in reverse, and it seems to work just as well. So we have this experience of linear time, but it doesn't seem to be... Uh, really what's going on when you think about remote viewing and and different psi phenomena, time and space seem irrelevant. When you think about quantum entanglement, time and space seem irrelevant, right? And, and part of the reason why physicists have had such a hard time wrapping their heads around it is because they're trying to figure it out from a physicalist model, which I think is a, you know, is a dead end road. It's just not going to work. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, I think, probably the most fascinating aspect to me that came out of this research. As much as there's many aspects that are interesting, the nature of the beings, the, the fact that it's more likely to be positive than not. But what really stands out to me is how almost all of these kinds of encounters, whether it's alien intelligence, whether it's a near-death experience, whatever, it's that time and space seem to be distorted, not just distorted, but you, you experience this almost in an altered state of consciousness or an alternate realm, almost like a lucid dream or a psychedelic experience. Again, there's there's crossover there as well. So these are these are fascinating uh, bits of the data. And like I say, what really stands out to me is that if you've had one of these contact modalities come online for you, you're much more likely to have others as well, which is just truly fascinating. Without a doubt. Well, that takes us to our, our next uh, clip here, which we're going to look at uh, near-death experience. So uh, if you go onto YouTube and, and look for near-death experiences, you're going to find a ton of uh, really interesting accounts. Um, this is just one that I chose. It had a lot of uh, views on YouTube, and I found it really fascinating. I haven't actually had the chance to listen to the whole thing, but I want to go back and listen to it. But this comes from uh, Dr. Eben Alexander, uh, who is a neurosurgeon. Yeah, so it's a it's a great link uh, and a little, little clip here. So he's going to tell us a little bit about, I kind of put it midstream, a little bit about his near-death experience and as you said earlier, sort of what it might speak to at a more fundamental level. So let's take a listen. Because up above, in the velvety black skies above, were pure spiritual beings, orbs of golden light, swooping and swirling in formation, leaving sparkling golden trails, emanating these hymns, chants, anthems, powerful like a tsunami wave crescendo after crescendo after crescendo of the most beautiful music waves washing through me and that's what was fueling this incredible joy and mirth going on in this gateway valley as i came to call it now the important thing to understand is that that gateway valley was much more real than this world far sharper, crisper, and more real than this. This is very dreamlike by comparison. That was a deep, deep mystery to me for a long time, trying to understand that ultra-reality. It's All right, so I love that little clip at the end there. That's why I kind of chose it. But uh, more real than real. Uh, here's a near-death experience. This gentleman uh, had suffered in extreme uh, 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 sort of bacterial infection in his brain, uh, damage to his brain, I think was in a coma, um, you know, had no sort of me mental function that we would call uh, mental activity from a scientific perspective, yet he's reporting an experience that is more vivid, uh, more real, 
than our waking reality. He, he even refers to our waking reality as the dream, you know, so, you know, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around that if you yourself haven't experienced it. But uh, I know we've talked about this quite a bit. I love NDEs. I love the way that they are, uh, you know, the experience that, that is shared there. And I think they provide a very profound insight into what's really happening uh, at that root level of reality. So I don't, what, what's your thought when listening to that, that clip? Yeah, like you already pointed out, one thing that's fascinating is how he says it It felt more real than real, which just, again, tells you that what we maybe lack here is just context, right? And, and contrast. And we uh, we define so much of our daily waking experience by, by contrast, you know? Um, how do we know it's dark? Because we've just seen a bright light and we know that comparatively, you know, it's different. What he's saying is that for the first time, you have something counter to the daily waking experience, and it's so solid and real and vibrant that it makes this feel dreamlike in comparison. And many of us have a really hard time wrapping our heads around that because we have no contrast. I remember, you know, when my son was younger, I one time I mentioned the possibility of there being colors that we haven't experienced yet. And he said, well, well, how can there be colors other than what we experience? So he couldn't wrap his head around when he was a young, younger kid around how that could even be, right? Which just shows you how much we're wedded to our our perception being akin to reality, right? Um, another thing that's fascinating about Eben Alexander specifically is he's a brain surgeon, right? So he's a brain surgeon who had this really rare condition that put him to this deep coma. And it's what's fascinating about the story, and I really encourage people to look into it if they don't know about it, it's not just that he had this near-death experience, but that the physiological damage to his brain should have been, again, based on history, so severe that he just shouldn't have recovered. Or if he did, it'd be basically a vegetable, so to speak. They they had basically already told, and he had the best brain surgeons in the world, his colleagues, right, came in and said, we got to help out. This is even here. And, and they just said, wow, this does not look good. No one comes back from this with normal brain function and, and any kind of like capacity to function like a normal human being. And they kind of prepared his family for that. And yet when he came back, he made a complete recovery, you know, and, and so that in itself is miraculous. How did that happen? What does that mean about reality? You know, what does that mean about the physicalist model when suddenly something happens? It's an outlier that's just not supposed to be possible, right? But yeah, he talks about, you know, kind of being very much in a materialist kind of physicalist, you know, medical perspective when this happened to him. And then his his worldview was blown apart and, and reassembled. Uh, because of this experience. And now he spends his life going around talking about this uh, because not only is it fascinating, it tells us so much about reality, but it brings meaning and purpose to people's lives because just like Ray, he now sees himself as this eternal being who's just having a temporary modality experience here as a human being in a, in a waking reality. Uh, but there's so much more to it than that. Uh, so yeah, just a, a fascinating case and uh fits very much with what the, uh, the free research found as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of went through like a little thought experiment of my own recently related to some of the, the, these concepts and it's, you know, we've all been to the movie theater. We've all been to a movie where we've, you know, been really immersed in that experience. And, you know, what would happen if, if we were in that theater for a very, very long time and it was just, you know, movie after movie after movie after movie. And that was the life that we knew, you know, we would eventually 
everyone in that theater, we would understand and come to understand if we at least particularly had no prior experience of that, uh, you know, no prior experience of anything outside of the theater. You know, we would come to understand that 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 constitutes our reality. Everything that's happening on that screen is is what's happening in reality. When we all know that's, you know, preposterous, you know, that, that that's they're inside a theater. They're looking at a screen. And that's really essentially what is taking place with our lived experience, that just because we all happen to be, uh, you know, seated at the same theater doesn't necessarily mean that we're watching reality take place. And uh, it's experiences like this, uh, as well as the other uh, contact experiences that we've already gone through, that to me uh, point very strongly as something more fundamental, more profound that is really taking place. And, and quite frankly, you know, the romantic in me is, you know, admires this because it's a lot more beautiful. You know, it's, it's a much more, uh, you know, um, powerful narrative uh, in terms of how we look at our, our place in the world, you know, what it is that we're here to do, how we interact with one another. Uh, to me, it, it really honors the human experience and doesn't reduce that to just a, you know, a series of uh, deterministic, you know, sort of uh, interactions amongst, you know, tiny little, little particles. Uh, so, you know, I, I prefer that. And uh, even though I understand that there, you know, the attractiveness of that materialist model, uh, for me at least, it uh, it just doesn't quite hold sway from a, I guess, an existential uh, standpoint. Um, so I, I don't know if you have anything else you want to say on that, but if not, I wanted to go to our next, you know, our, our next and final clip, which is, uh, you know, really kind of out there, uh, but one I think that we both uh, enjoy. And, and after that, we'll just kind of reflect on uh, what we've ta talked about so far. So this last clip here uh, is from Terrence McKenna. And those of you who aren't familiar with McKenna, um, understand that he is uh, well known for uh, his experiments with psychedelics, uh, in particular, uh, psilocybin. Um, and he's uh, well known for his expositions on his many uh, trips and experiences with uh, not, not only psilocybin, but other hallucinogens. So here we have uh, McKenna talking about uh, the mushroom and kind of having a conversation with it. Let's take a listen. Psilocybin. Without doubt, in my mind, the most unique feature of psilocybin is that it speaks it speaks in your native tongue. And that is absolutely confounding to the rational mind. I mean, that's what makes a believer out of most skeptics. Because, you know, drugs, of course, you can imagine that a drug would mess with your mind and you would see strange things. That doesn't seem too over the top. But that you could take a drug that would drop a heavy hand on your shoulder and say, my friend, there are a few things you need to understand. Number one, number two. Meanwhile, you know, you're bursting into tears. You're reacting furiously because it's right. It's wiser than you could have possibly imagined. And it knows you better than you know yourself. And it's not wasting time it's cutting to the chase and all right it's a great clip there from uh, from terrence explaining the uh insight the powerful insight of the mushroom which he is kind of personifying uh in, in this uh exposition um 
But, you know, someone I myself have not had an experience, a psychedelic experience. I've certainly known people who have, and, and I've listened to plenty of encounters. Uh, it, it does strike me as very profound that you could take a substance, a chemical substance that would uh, interact with your body in such a way where you are, you come away with a sense in which you have engaged with another intelligence. Uh, that, you know, almost for me, it's, it's, it's like, have, it's like a split personality happening inside your own psyche. What is going on there? And, uh, you know, so we've talked a little bit about, uh, I think, you know, the uh, psychedelics in our personal conversations, what is it about McKenna's experience here, uh, psychedelics in particular that, uh, interests you as it relates to, uh, contact with the phenomenon? Right. Well, I will begin by uh, being open and honest with people and say I do consider myself a psychonaut and uh, I have partaken of uh, these kind of um, compounds and have had some absolutely mind-blowing experiences, which I've shared with you. Um, I'm personally convinced that it's it's much more than what the physicalist model would have you believe is going on. For instance, one of the things that the physicalist model would have you believe is that uh, you know, you're basically, your brain's lighting up with the drugs just doing things in your brain, like in the gray matter of your brain. And what's fascinating is that that is not confirmed when we actually look at brain scans. When you look at brain scans, actually the metabolism or the activity of the brain goes is greatly reduced. So you don't see much going on at all. And simultaneously, people are having the most mind-blowing experiences of their life where everything is much more vivid, much richer. Uh, not just visually, but in terms of the the feeling of meaning. You know, I, I've talked to you personally about some of the experiences I have. I feel like I'm dealing with the substrate of the meaning uh, structure of reality prior to physicality and structure, prior to form, just the meaning level of reality. And it's completely, insanely, utterly overwhelming. Uh, but in a really profound way. I mean, it almost feels like it could kill you. Sometimes it's so intense uh, on some of the larger amounts. And it's very overwhelming, but it's also extremely meaningful. It will, for me, take down the the filters that I've erected over time to live my life and my everyday life. There's ways we form a certain identity, an ego that we we use to navigate through the waking world in our society. And I feel what this does is it it knocks that down like a house of cards in no time. And suddenly you just have pure emotive meaning running over you and running through you. And it's 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 profound, it's powerful, and it's overwhelming. And I feel like it does a lot of it can do a lot of healing work and even a lot of shadow work that might take years in therapy. You can have it done in no time because this gets right to it. And it's good for someone like me who can tend to be pretty stoic and pretty uh, intellectual because it, it sort of works on a completely different level and, and works on me in ways that I'm not able to do to myself, even if I want to. So it's sort of like saying you surrender to this process that, again, is it some other intelligence? Is, is it the cosmic intelligence? Is it the life force? I don't know. But, it, but it's in, incredibly impacting and effective and... I would also say what's 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 interesting too is I never know what's going to happen. It can be quite different each time. You can never predict it. And I've also had experiences where 
I'll start making assumptions about, okay, so it's like this. So I, I, I shared this with you one time that I noticed I was seeing a lot of blues and greens, right? With all these fractal patterns, right? That people sometimes see. And by the way, it's more than it's much more than visual. You're feeling this intense emotion like you've never felt before while you're seeing these patterns. And I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. It's blues and greens. And I happen to like blues and greens. I use that a lot in you know paintings and just in my everyday life. So maybe it's just my bias. And at that very moment, everything faded to a grayscale. And it was like something was feeding back to me and saying, oh, don't be so quick to think this is about you. It's not. And let's make that clear right now. And the other thing I want to add to is that this is something that all of these different modalities have in common is that, you know, we think about meditative practice, even, you know, people who are lifelong experiencers, you know, or, or lifelong meditators who've done it for a decade or two, get to the point where they can bring their brain function to nearly zero. Like you, you look at these different, you know, frequencies of their brain. Uh, I remember there's this famous video out there where Ken Wilber, um, famous for integral theory, actually has like a, a machine, uh, like a mind machine that's like reading his brain waves. And by in real time, you see him go into a meditative state and it all reduces to zero across all these frequencies. So what you're basically doing is you're taking your executive ego offline. The usual waking state that you use to get around the world, you're taking that offline and where the physicalist model would tell you that you should therefore have not much of all going on, what people actually experience across all these modalities is an incredibly vibrant experience. You know, whether it's even Alexander where he's in a coma, right? He's, there's no brain function. And yet he's having these like lit up experiences that feel more real than real. Same thing with me on psychedelic experiences. Same thing in meditative states. Again, your brain function looks like it's really minimal and yet you're having these basically out of body experiences and so what I think is really going on there, and this is key in terms of seeing some sort of overarching pattern, is that we are experiencing more of reality apart from our filters, our usual filters when we're in these states. And these are the same states that we're accessing when we, we ha sometimes have alien experiences or near-death experiences or what have you. That again, you have this modality where we, we become much more than just the executive ego we usually identify with. And when we are able to escape that paradigm, we experience much richer, vibrant reality. Hmm. Well, I think to a lot of recent conversation that we've had regarding uh, changes in brain states, and uh, particularly that, you know, it's very popular to talk about the research that's been done on the Claudette Puteman and uh, greater connectivity there in that area of the brain. And yet, here we are, you know, and I think rightly so, landing on a conclusion that it's not necessarily the the activity that we can measure in the brain that is what is, you know, correlating and directly resulting uh, from a phenomenal experience. Um, that that is, um, in some ways, uh, kind of a dead end path to to follow. Not that we can't learn th something from that. Uh, and not that it is meaningless, but that these other uh, sort of results from other experiences all seem pretty strongly to point to uh, that lowered state of activity really corresponding with uh, an increase in phenomenal experience. Um, and it may just be that uh, when individuals are in close proximity uh, to whatever some of these crafts uh, happen to be, uh, you know, it's not that they aren't 
real, you know, in the sense that they, you can knock on them or whatever, they may generate electromagnetic fields and they may do all these kinds of things that we can measure, you know, with our materialist physicalist science. Uh, and they may have real effects on our biology, uh, just like, you know, a fire will burn you, uh, you know, but getting back to, you know, what you just recently talked about on point of convergence with Donald Hoffman, uh, you know, these experiences, uh, you know, are really at root things that impact our ability to survive and navigate our environments. They are not to be confused with what is actually happening, what, what is really happening in reality itself. And so I think this is, at least it was for me, uh, and I'm still kind of get, getting through it, a difficult concept to kind of grasp. I think, uh, you know, you see a, a lot of talk in the community about consciousness and about consciousness being the key, but, and even uh, elements of idealism, which is you know, something that we've you know, really landed on pretty heavily, but all of the pieces, at least from what I've observed, you know, aren't quite clicking into place. And so, you know, I think it's, it's that reason why looking at these examples uh, of not only psychedelic experience, but NDE that really, point very, very well to this new model and, and I think better help us understand what might really be taking place here. And then we can start asking the real questions, you know, so what, what is, you know, fundamental reality, you know, what, what, what is happening in a UFO encounter, you know, what really is a, a non-human entity, uh, a gray or whatever it may be, what does that represent? You know, what is actually taking place? You know, the, these are the questions that we need to be asking, not, you know, from what star system did it come from? Uh, or, you know, how do we manufacture that UFO? Uh, you know, how do we reverse engineer it? You know, it's not that we can't ask the, those questions, but I don't think it's really getting at, uh, you know, the root level of what's taking place here. Right. And you, you touched on Donald Hoffman and how I talked about his work in my most recent Point of Convergence episode. And just for those who haven't heard that, what he's basically saying is that evolution has served up a desktop interface that we use to interact with reality in the same way that when you need to write a paper or move files around on your computer, you access it via a desktop interface. And we know that the desktop interface is not the reality of the computer. The reality of the computer is you know, transistors and zeros and ones and binary code and a mixture of software and hardware. But we can use the interface in a meaningful way and accomplish real tasks, but we would not be so silly as to assume that the desktop interface is really the computer world, right? It's just a an abstraction that's useful for us. In the same way, he's saying our everyday experience, the way we see reality, the way we perceive reality through all our senses is only that. It is just a desktop interface. And that he's also argued that the reason the Fermi paradox exists, which suggests that it's strange that for how much life there should be out there based on the plentitude of even habitable planets that should be existing across the expanse of the cosmos, why haven't we found more life, alien life? And he's saying it's because we're looking in exactly the wrong place. We're looking within the paradigm of the desktop interface, that he's saying space-time itself is not real. It is just how it appears to us in the same way that your your you know trash icon on your desktop 
computer is not real. It's just a rendering that helps you navigate that space. And in the same way, space-time is just an icon that helps us navigate our lives. Again, it can be meaningful without being literal. And that's that's the key distinction. And again, all of what we're talking about here, the whole more real than real and near-death experiences and psychedelic journeys and in my own experience with meditative practice, same thing. Once you've meditated for a long time, you can drop into a stream of consciousness where you feel like you're your usual sense of who you are is expanded and you're experiencing things and even uh, having like recall memories of things that don't seem to be part of this particular iteration. That's what been my experience anyway. So all of this is pointing in the same direction. And that's probably the most fascinating aspect of all of this for me. And I'm left kind of wondering, you know, what value is this experience you know what what does this uh you know the, the modality that we're all the most familiar with uh in the 21st century you know what kind of value does it provide i'm not saying it's meaningless i don't think anyone's saying that but what purpose does it serve if if it is uh you know it is it is removed in, in some degree or varying degrees from that you know root experience and we we hear from folks who uh who have had uh near-death experiences we hear from folks who have been uh who shared abduction experiences you know they've talked about this in terms of you know this is kind of a, a place to learn it's a place to grow it's a place to uh you know experience and in, in di- different things and in many ways do it over and over again you know there's this element of reincarnation uh, past life experience is something we haven't touched on in this episode, but certainly plays a part uh, in the overall, uh, you know, sort of spectrum here. And so, you know, that that seems like a reasonable conclusion to land on, that this experience uh, that we all share is meaningful and valuable in, in, in as much as it is, uh, it is instructive. Uh, it allows us to, uh, to experiment, to have novel experience, uh, to interact, uh, to fail, uh, to experience pain and, and joy, you know, and maybe these are things that are at least not experienced in the same degree that uh, we that may be experienced at that more root level. You know, th- it's this kind of uh, recursive process of re- of refinement in a way uh, that we have to you know take lessons learned and go back and come back again uh, to to perfect that uh, sort of experience. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but you know, to me, as someone who's coming from a religious background and has wrestled with these big questions, you know, this is something that I, I land on after looking at this subject for some time. Right. I would say a couple of things on that. Uh, and I want to touch a bit more on Terrence McKenna's perspective since we listened to his uh, clip last. Number one, he's made an excellent point that if you're going to spread alien life, alien intelligence through the cosmos, spores would be a great way to do it. You could you could plant these spores on, you know, you could sprinkle them across meteorites and whatnot and different, you know, debris that are out in space that eventually will impact planets. And then only when, we know this works the way spores work, right? Only when the environmental conditions are perfectly suitable, does the spore then, you know, become life and can become a mushroom or whatever. If you think about it, 
knowing that the native species is eventually going to come across these and probably ingest them at some point. And then that becomes a modality at which you could have communication between this alien intelligence and this new novel kind of life that's sprung up on this planet, that that would be a really fail-safe way to pretty much guarantee interaction, communication amongst these very different, different intelligences. And something else that Terrence McKenna has pointed out is that as much as ufologists talk about, man, I wish we could reproduce these experiences that people have with aliens or seeing UFOs. What McKenna will say is, well, you know, psychedelics are a guaranteed reproducible uh, methodology you can use to have some of these experiences. And, you know, he makes the point again that, you know, is the mushroom a kind of alien intelligence, even kind of a collective alien intelligence? You know, like we, um, we know that they're the root structure that sort of, you know, connect these different mushrooms. There was a, a, a huge uh, location found, I think, in Washington state where the, the root system for this in huge mushroom patch was all connected. It was like one single intelligence kind of like all connected across what we see on the surface. And, you know, you definitely, like he said, in terms of the mushroom speaking to you, you get the sense that you're dealing with some other intelligence. It's not just your subconscious manifesting or something like that, or you're just, you know, using creative expression or something. Again, I think people from a materialist or physicalist model tend to make those assumptions, but those who have actually had the experience say, uh-uh, this is not that. This is mind-blowingly different. This feels alien. It feels like I'm dealing with something that either is this sort of primordial life force that we're not usually in, in contact with in our waking experience, or it's some sort of alien intelligence that uh, interacts with me in a, in a telepathic deeply embodied way that like rolls over me like a tsunami, you know, and that's, that's been my experience and, and touching on what you said about, you know, religious history and whatnot and religious experience, you look at something like DMT and what's fascinating is, you know, someone can have an experience with DMT and be in and out in like 10, 15 minutes, right? That's, that's how much commitment you have to make. And yet many, many people that go in as like hardcore atheists will come out believing in God, believing in uh, the connectivity between all sentient life, believing in the meaning, the overarching deep purposefulness of life, of existence because of this experience in 10 minutes. You know, it's just, it is fascinating, not just how impacting it is, but how reproducible it is. And it's unfortunate that our society, the laws and whatnot, uh, are so restrictive uh, in this uh, in this way, and really haven't made uh, useful distinctions between the kinds of substances that can be detrimental to people versus ones that can be not only neutral or positive, but could even have overarching positive impact on an entire society. And that was kind of what Terence McKenna lobbied for, and I, I tend to agree with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that we have some degree of remembering and reanimating to do when it comes to what these substances can teach us. You know, we certainly have many examples of other human cultures and history and even uh, in remote places uh, in, in the world today that still, you know, use these substances in a shamanic practice uh, to gain wisdom and insight into their experience. And it strikes me that we've really got to recapture some of that. Uh, you know, it's not just the 
Western pharmacological approach of just take this and you'll be fine. You know, this will solve your problem. It's it's take this in the context of you know someone who's been down that path before. You know, you can learn from their journey. They're going to help you navigate this. You know, it is a communal, it is a ritual, quite frankly. And uh, so there is this sense in which we we are going to need to re-ritualize uh, some aspects of our culture in order to more fully understand and reclaim, uh, I think, our, our understanding of what is really taking place here and to advance not only our science, but advance our wisdom. And it's also in that same vein that as we move forward with uh, this greater uh, sort of awakening uh, of reality as it pertains to the UFO and, and the phenomenon at large, you know, just, just in that, that same way, we are going to have to learn a new language. We're going to have to learn new ways of listening and of being and of responding, interacting in order for us to have a meaningful relationship with whatever these entities represent. Uh, you know, and, and I'm hopeful, as I think you are as well, that we are at the beginning of that conversation. And, you know, I hope that we have the, uh, the we are having the right conversations in the right places right now so that as this unfolds, we are prepared uh, to ask the right questions and, and to engage with this, whatever it may be, with a state, uh, sort of an act of w w wisdom uh, and intentionality. We're not just going to sort of stumble into it and fall our way into disclosure. We're going to do this with some thoughtfulness uh, because it really is something we might only get one good shot at doing correctly. So uh, with that, that said, this has been a, a good episode. I've enjoyed uh, looking at these different uh, aspects and areas. Um, we very much enjoy uh, having you along with us on this journey and look forward to your feedback. Uh, as always, you can find us uh, out there on, on the Internet, various places, on YouTube, on the Exo Academian channel, uh, and under Liminal Frames uh, through your podcast platform of choice. So we'll conclude as we often do with our blessing. It may even be called a benediction. So may the quality of our questions shaped by a desire for understanding enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.